I did a thing yesterday that I don't do very often, um, but have done a couple of times, um, as many of you know. I threw out my sermon that I had written. I was just not feeling it. Uh, It never flowed in the writing of it, and sometimes that just happens, and sometimes when that happens, it ends up feeling forced or stilted or somehow not entirely true. Um, And so prompted in part by the Seattle Mennonite Church hiking group, we were a small but mighty bunch yesterday at Wallace Falls, um, and that experience of walking together um, and having the kinds of true um, and connecting conversations that you can have in that kind of setting. that helped to prompt me to have the courage to just toss the sermon. I had a quick turnaround at home before coming for the longest night service, and so I just started speaking it aloud to John. John had to give me a ride over here, and I started speaking it aloud, and I thought, oh, it just doesn't feel right, and this feels more right. And he said, well, then there it is. So I got to my office, and I scribbled down a bunch of notes. So I do have notes. Um, I'm not entirely off the cuff. Um, But part of what I think I realized yesterday is that I refuse to squander my final Advent sermon of this year to what I wrote that felt really dissatisfying to me. Um, Many of you know that Advent is my favorite season. um, There is something about what we do here that is different from what's happening in the culture around us, that just feels so very real and true and important to me. Um, And I was sharing some of this with my spiritual director earlier in the week, and she reflected back to me a word that I was apparently using a lot, um, and that is longing. And I think that's what Advent is for me, is a season of naming really honestly our longing for things to be different than they are. And it's a longing, that Advent longing is one of the truest and most real things that I experience in this world. It's a longing that is both ancient, that connects with the longing of the people of God throughout time, and contemporary, um, a longing that feels very real in our very present day circumstances and context. It is a longing that feels new every single year and also feels very, very old. I long for God's coming, for God's inbreaking in this world, for the full realization of shalom, for the dove to fly from the prison bars, for the prison bars to collapse in its wake. I long for that just peace for all peoples and all creation that we name each week as we light our peace lamp together. With every fiber of my being, I long for liberation, for God to look favorably upon us as we heard Elizabeth say in our scripture this morning. 
I long for that liberation. I long for it personally in my own life. I long for it collectively in our life together. I long for it systemically in all the big ways that Daryl alluded to um, in the realities of uh, racism and sexism and the violence that we do to poor and marginalized communities and the wildfires in Australia and all of it. I long for liberation in the big systemic ways. So what are we waiting for? Liberation. Yeah. It is hard not to fall into despair when we take this really honest look at the world around us. Um, I was reading in sort of an older version of the Christian century this week, a piece by Nibs Straup called Repair Work, um, in which, now I'm realizing I don't even know the gender of Nibs. They. In which they write um, reparations as a spiritual issue. And one of the things they pointed out that actually happened last year, but I I missed it in the um, news headlines that pile up on one another. In October 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court voted 5-4 to to uphold a North Dakota law that required all voters to have a street address. Native Americans who lived on reservations without street addresses, they don't exist on reservations, were the ones primarily affected. No intent to discriminate based on race was expressed in the law, but its purpose was clear to take the vote away from as many native indigenous peoples as possible. And that's just, you know, one small example in North Dakota, then onto our US Supreme Court. And you know the flood of headlines as well as I do. It's hard not to fall into despair when we so long for liberation and yet are eyes wide open about what's happening in the world around us. Especially. And this is why I love Advent, I think, so much and why it feels so poignant to me. Especially 2,000 years on the other side of the coming of the promised one. The one whose coming was to usher in God's reign. And here we are 2,000 years later and still dealing with this crap. With each passing year, the longing and the cries... um, Uh, become more urgent. How long, how long, O Lord, must we wait? That temptation to despair uh, leads me to ponder hope. Um, How to claim or name or embrace or embody hope in the midst of the temptation to despair. And something I know I've said from this pulpit at least once, probably multiple times, you'll probably hear it more, um, Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy, who was here a couple of years back and I got to hear him speak and something he said has reverberated in me ever since. He said, you are either hopeful or you are part of the problem. (sighs) Hope is an optional you got to wake up each day and embrace it and claim it and step into it or be 
part of the problem. That is going to probably reverberate in me for a lifetime. Which is not to shame you when you feel hopeless, because we all do, right? So we both need to not shame for feeling hopeless and call each other into hope. This is imperative in liberation movements, in liberation longing, to choose hope again and again despite all evidence to the contrary. And it's part of why I can't do faith solo, or life solo, but very specifically faith solo. Because there have been times in my life where I've needed others to carry hope for me. Where I've needed to rely on the hope that is generated in this room without having to find it, pull myself up by my bootstraps and find it all within me. There are times when I've needed to lean on others to hold hope for me. And I do believe that hope works that way. At certain times, in certain situations, I've needed to rely on others to hold hope on my behalf. And it has been my privilege to hold hope for others as well, when, for whatever reason, they cannot hold hope for themselves. Thanks be to God. Part of my broader faith community um, is a person named Celeste Kennel Shank. She was part of my Chicago church. She's also a Mennonite minister. She's one of the editors of the Christian Century and Debbie's niece. And she wrote this recently, also in the Christian Century. I paid closer attention because it's someone that I know and care about. Each year we repeat Advent rituals, Celeste writes. We sing the hymns and recite the familiar verses. Time overlaps the present and the future tenses, proclaiming God's transformation even as we still long for it. Proclaiming it even as we still long for it. What would it look like, she asks, to really let Advent proclamations seep into our weariest places where despair creeps in and threatens to take hold? How might we find hope when our activist efforts seem to fail? Not just hope for some day, but hope for now. Maybe hope is as basic as refusing to give up and sell out. Hope is continuing to be God's hands and feet in the world, even when the odds are against us. Hope is openness to transformation, listening and looking for signs of God's action happening all around us, just like Jesus told John's disciples to tell John when John... John's disciples came to Jesus and said, what are, what are we looking for? And Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. Present tense, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Hope is trust in the character of our God as one who brings justice to the oppressed, not just tomorrow, but today. Hope is knowing that God acts in human history for liberation and restoration. We only need the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it. Celeste was a bearer and proclaimer of hope for me this week. She was a bearer and proclaimer of hope for God's inbreaking and liberation in the world. Thanks be to God for her and for so many who do that for me and for us and for each of you. Oh, there's another one that's sort of silly, and I forgot to bring it up, and I wonder if that's a sign that I'm not supposed to share the silly one. No, I'm going to share it. 
Because I can hear it in my tone, it feels all somber, and it is. Cinderella Liberator. I don't know where I encountered this. I saw it listed somewhere, so I put it on hold with the library, and I picked it up this week. It's actually written by Rebecca Solnit, who wrote a couple of the walking books that I um, read over sabbatical. She's a really fantastic author. Anyway, I'm not going to read you the book, although the book is delightful, and I commend it to you. It is a retelling of Cinderella. Um, and there are a number of these right out there, contemporary, modern retelling of old fairy tales. And a lot of them take sort of the um, uh, women's liberation approach where she becomes empowered and does something really different. And that is true, but that's not the only thing that's true. And so in her commentary in the afterword, and she reflects on this process of getting to write, writing this, and she said, she's talking about Cinderella's need for liberation in the old story. Then she said, besides, the prince also seemed to need liberation. In the end, even the stepsisters needed to be set free. I wanted a story about liberation, about, as Kianga Yamata Taylor put it in another Haymarket book, how we get free, or, as Buddhists sometimes put it, the liberation of all being, or, as Christians put it, for all flesh will see it together. The liberation and just peace create a vision of God that is for all peoples and all creation. Another restorer of hope for me is proclaiming God's liberation together in song. That is the thing that we do together when we sing together God's vision of liberation. When we sing it together, um, it can actually be a generator of hope for me. So even if, again, I'm not bootstraps feeling it myself, the act of singing together can actually generate a sense of hope and energy in me to go out um, with more hope and more energy. Which brings me to Zechariah, of course. Um, And another perhaps silly thing this week, Marilyn and I were at the same performance of A Christmas Carol this week. I've kind of been thinking of Zechariah as Scrooge, um, because he's sort of grumpy at the beginning, and I won't take all the time to tease it out, but he's sort of grumpy at the beginning of the story. Uh, And then there's this, um, he's struck mute for a long, ponderous time in the middle, which is sort of like his encounter of the spirits. You know, he's got to have this existential journey of muteness. Uh, And then he emerges from that existential quietness to practically leap with praise and joyous prophecies for liberation. It's amazing. So there's this, and then struck mute, and then, Thanks, Daryl, for being confident enough to sing from our pulpit, because that gets the spirit of it. After nine months and eight days of muteness, I love that when Zechariah's vocal cords are liberated, he breaks into joyous, prophetic song about his coming son, or his just-come son, John the Baptist, who will emerge from the wilderness margins to prepare a way for another, Jesus, who will also emerge from the wilderness margins to proclaim a way, a way of just peace, a way of liberation.
Zechariah's movement to song as his vocal cords are liberated is a tradition that he inherited. He inherited a tradition of prophetic song. He inherited it from Hannah and Miriam and David and even Mary just before him. And we're going to get to sing a version of Mary's prophetic song, Magnificat, at the end of this service. So it's a tradition he inherited, and it's also a tradition that he helps root for us. We inherit his tradition. And I'm so grateful, Daryl, that you evoked um, a powerful lineage of prophetic scripture and song all the way through. Sam Cooke, yes, indeed. Um, So on this first day of our earth turning again toward the sun, we've just emerged from our longest night, and now we turn again toward the sun. I'm particularly touched by and particularly moved to proclaim from Zechariah's prophetic song, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to give light and liberation (laughs) to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, into the way of justice, into the way of liberation. What are we waiting for? What are we longing for? Liberation! (laughs) So, let us proclaim it together in song, in Zechariah's song, very specifically this morning, which is sung in the present tense. And let us sing it with as much hope as we can muster. And if you can't muster much hope, maybe just pay attention to whether or not hope is gathering around you in the room. And I think to help us feel that, I'm going to invite us to uh, try to look at each other as much as we can in this singing, which might make your job a little bit harder, Robin, but I think it's a familiar enough hymn um, that what I'm going to do is invite you to stand and kind of turn towards the middle. Um, so that I don't know if there's going to be any awkward kissing in the middle of that section, but you know, you can step back a little bit, give yourself a little bit of space, but kind of turn towards one another. And let's, um, let's sing 174 in our blue hymnals, which is um, an interpretation of Zechariah's song. And may we, in the singing of this, like John the Baptist, grow strong in spirit together. Amen.